their passion and willingness to do absolutely anything it takes to be the best. Hey everyone, welcome to another episode of Teach Me in 20. I'm Karis Ryan and joining me today is Sarah Stone. She's a former pro tennis player on the women's tennis circuit. She's a former coach of Sam Stoza, who of course is a very well-known name in Australian tennis. And she's joining me today because tennis coaching has gone digital and this is what I wanted to chat to her about. There's a few apps out there and some that are being developed, which are going to change the way we coach. And being a tennis coach myself, I was interested to learn about it. She also reflects on her time on the tour, a few of the lessons learnt, uh, what life on the road is like, isolation. And I think that's really relevant right now. We've been in isolation, some countries still are. Even if you've never played tennis or have no idea about the tennis circuit, there's still things that she talks about which are relevant to the normal person. So working with other people, working with kids. I've got a few friends that are teachers. Um, Sarah's coached people from all age groups. And she's now the CEO of the Women's Tennis Coaching Association, which is paving the way for female coaches in the tennis world, making them more visible and trying to get them to step up into the elite level of coaching. So stay tuned for all of that. If you enjoy the chat, make sure you subscribe. So each week you can hear from someone new and learn from their past experience, what they're doing, learn something new along the way. Also, if you want to keep the conversation going, make sure to head over to our Facebook group, the Teach Me in 20 podcast Facebook group. Join there and we can where we discuss past episodes and you can ask the questions. Let's get to it. Teach Me in 20. Teach Me in 20. Sarah Stone, welcome on. Hey, Karis. It's a long resume. I could have kept going, but like what's kept you going in the tennis world for so long? Just different interests in the sport, I guess. I haven't really stuck to one thing. I've flip-flopped from coaching on the tour and then doing some club work to college coaching all over the place. I think there's so many different things in tennis, different avenues you can go down, and that's what's kept it pretty interesting for me. What's life been like, you know, not traveling full time? I haven't traveled full time for about two years now. I stopped working with Alexandra Krunich just before the US Open in 2018, and I was traveling full time with her. And I've been back home a lot. Then I got into this mode where I wanted to take a break from that full time travel. So I started up an academy in California and yeah, just change direction. But I, I do miss being on the road. I love traveling. It's what, it's my favorite thing in the world. What do you miss most? So what did you enjoy sort of best about the tour life? I don't, I don't actually miss tour life. I don't particularly enjoy tour life. I think there's some really isolating things about it, which is funny. We're in, we're in the ISO phase right now, but yeah, it's, it's not just isolating because when we're isolated at home okay that's within our own parameters but when you're on the tour you're almost isolated because it's not always the most friendly place out there you know you might walk past people and they might talk or they might not talk so it's a different form of isolation so that's not the part that I particularly miss I do miss some of my friends definitely from around the world I love going back to see them I miss the travel and the places and going on adventures and that's what I loved about tennis is that tennis was like a vehicle to take me on adventures. So when you were traveling on the road for long periods of time how did you deal with that how did you deal with being away from home 
So the longest couple of trips I did when I was had just turned 20, I was playing doubles with Sam Stozer and we went to Europe, I think, oh, I don't know, I might have been gone for six or seven months that trip and wow. I never felt like I was homesick or anything because it was an amazing adventure. We went all over Europe and Asia and tripping around and I thought it was fun because it was almost like a life experience where you're learning new things and you're having to navigate things on your own and I'm the kind of person that loves a challenge and loves new things and isn't afraid to just give anything a go. So for me, that didn't really feel isolating or I didn't feel lonely and also because I've made so many friends on the road. So I always feel like home for me is anywhere where my friends are and and I enjoy myself. That's good. Gosh, you speak to some players and they're just like, oh, like it's so such a long stretch of time away from home or living out of a suitcase for that long uh, just grinds on them. I don't mind living out of a suitcase because I don't care what I wear. Something <laughs> I'm so worried about changing outfits and I don't, I n- never wear too many things. I'm happy with like five t-shirts that I really like. I think the convenience of having laundry is, is the thing that makes it okay. I think when you're on the road not doing what wears on you. And I remember we were in this city one time, Sam and I was called, the name was St. Good Ends and we were washing our stuff in a, in a bathtub and I think that's like that's one of the biggest grinds of being on the road not being able to wash your clothes yeah those socks in like the bathroom basement and you're just like you're one pair of undies short for the next day and you're like I gotta wash these yeah and then Sam would always want to wear the same shirt for every match that she would wear so that you know if she won she wanted to wear the same shirt so she was she was actually a real expert on washing in the in the basin or in the in the bathtub, but I didn't care. <laughs> so she thought it was like a good luck shirt to have to keep wearing it. Yeah, always. I don't know if she still <laughs> does that now. Like maybe she does. I'm not sure, but she did then, and it brought her pr- plenty of luck. She had a pretty successful career, so hey, whatever works, I guess. Yeah, absolutely. So obviously you've coached players at the top. What do you think separates those at the very elite level, you know, your top 10 players? What separates them from the rest? What attributes have they got? It's an interesting question. I think that it's different for different people. I mean, some people obviously have incredible skill and grit and determination, but I think the number one thing that you look for, and I see this with kids all the time, is just their passion and willingness to do absolutely anything it takes to be the best. And I know that's Mm -hmm. certainly true for Sam. I mean, Sam's the the best player that I ever worked with. And I worked with a couple other girls. One was 30 in the world and another one was, well, Alex Krunich got to 38 in the world. So there's a big difference between 30, 38, and then that top 10 level. And that's just, I feel like it's that overall professionalism, just willing to do absolutely everything. And that doesn't mean you're going to be top 10 in the world, but it certainly means that you're going to maximize your ability and reach as high as you possibly could. So I would say with kids, you sometimes you can tell pretty quickly how hard they're going to try or how much effort they're going to put in and their commitment to the sport. But the biggest thing with kids that I like to look for is, how much do they watch tennis? 
so many kids mm-hmm. I coach, their parents are like, oh, they really want to be a good player. And then I'll ask the kids, do you watch tennis? And they're not even obsessed with the sport. So I am the first one to tell the parents, like, it's, you know, these are the signs we look for. But yeah, I think it's just an absolute dedication to their craft and and they it's a level of intensity when they when they practice, I would say. And it's not always it's not always you're not all born with it. I don't think it's completely innate. And I know that certainly some players were a little lackluster early in their careers and figured it out later on, but they figure mm-hmm. it out and that's the important factor. Yeah. Definitely it's I feel now like the top 100 the average age is definitely that older bracket you know back in the day we used to see you know a lot of 17 year olds but that's not Mm. really the norm now so it's good to see that changing up yeah I think it's great to see that changing up I like that people are playing later into their careers also I think it's great for the sport because the older they are and the more experience and maturity that they have is the more perspective and it I think it adds a different dimension to our sport and not just a young person who's not very good at communicating with the public. So, I mean, some young young people are great with that, but the older people have a little bit more life experience and stories to tell. So it's more interesting for the viewership, which helps our sport. We don't really do a great job. I don't think of telling stories about the players. We just talk about their results and not about the person, which I, I would really like to see increase. Yeah. A bit more personable. Yeah. What about from, you know, your coaching now, when you're working with a player, are you riding the highs with them and the disappointments as well? Or you tr- do you try to detach yourself from it and sort of treat them all as equals? I definitely try to detach from it. I try not to get too involved in the ups and downs of the coaching and I just try to let the results be what they are. I don't think it's particularly healthy to ride the the highs and lows and certainly part of the thrill of coaching is when players do well and you've worked really hard and they're successful and and that's obviously amazing but if you get sucked into that every match and just the stress of it and I think it doesn't allow you to have as good an overview or perspective as to the day-by-day part of the journey so that's something that I really actively choose and you have to really be disciplined with your mind to not get into that and get into the, oh, if they win this and that will happen and then they'll get to this ranking. Because what can happen for coaches is those high results, those great results are not just a, a self-fulfilling thing. Sometimes the ego comes in and coaches will start to think, oh, if she wins this and does that, then she'll win that grand slam and then everyone will think I'm awesome. I mean, that's just the ego speaking to you. So I think if you can separate yourself and just remain in the process, and that's what we ask players to do. So I think as coaches, we need to set that as an example and not get carried away with big results and not get too disappointed in losses. And certainly something that Ties has done a great job with Ash Barty. She talks about it all the time. And I don't think it's fake whatsoever and even if it was fake it doesn't make a difference because that's the mindset that you need to keep things as level as possible. Is it hard as a coach as well because obviously you're you're sort of you're employed by the player and while you're trying to sort of be real with them and give it to them straight you also I guess are sort of still trying to keep your job. Is it hard keeping that balance at that level? It is very difficult because there's those players in the world that get it and they are at their ranking or wherever they are on the trajectory that they're on because of their discipline and 
professionalism and then there's other players that they're not the same and I've worked with a couple of players that are very fixed mindset and not as professional as they could possibly be and I'm I'm not saying that I was because I just didn't I didn't want to dedicate myself to that so it's interesting when you look at it how professional they are is that a reflection of how much they love it because there's a lot of players who actually just play for money which is you know they they come out and they talk about that but I think the hard thing is when you're employed by them that you're worried about making that money for some coaches I've got a couple of kids now that I work with and different different kids I mean I think they're wasting their time so at some point you have to think about yourself and your enjoyment as a coach and I've certainly had that conversation with players that weren't willing to change and said that okay I think that's it Um, other coaches might just suck it up and want to be part of the tour and it's that's not for me I I would rather remain authentic and true to myself and and work in an environment that I could thrive and you certainly can't thrive if a player is resistant or treats you badly and I I mm. I would never be a person to just stand by and let that happen I would I would walk away from it because it's not the be all and end all there's plenty of coaching jobs you need to keep your integrity that's more important to me have you seen players really disrespecting their coaches yeah I've had players really be disrespectful to me so not not many but a couple and and obviously professional players are dealing with different things, but there has to be some level of respect and everyone has a different threshold and a line that they've got to kind of draw in the sand and say, well, enough's enough. And I've, I have I had one or two situations that were difficult and tried to communicate that to the player, like that's not going to go and that's not going to work for me. And And then sometimes they might come back and go, well, that's it that's the way it is and I don't care or they might say I understand I'm working through some stuff and I, I'm gonna I'm gonna do a better job I was I was just letting off steam and I think you just have to pay attention to whether or not the players open to learning from where they're blowing up and they're committed to that growth and moving through that as a person or they're just resistant and don't care if they rip you and you're there as a servant for them and and I cannot, and maybe they, you know, at times they want to advance their career. They need to hang in there for a little while longer. It's like the real world. Sometimes you don't like your boss, but at a point there's, you're compromising yourself and, and I wouldn't do that. I asked you before what separates the better players. What do you think separates the better coaches? So what makes those coaches the better ones, the ones that everyone wants, you know, at that top level? A bit of luck sometimes. I don't always think that the very best coaches in the world are working with the very best players I mean certainly any coach that's working at that level is a great coach and I think that we have a lot of great coaches on the WTA tour and a lot of friends I really respect and and want to talk tennis with fairly often but I know some fantastic coaches working in clubs or at lower levels who I would consider in the couple of best coaches in the world and they're not working with Grand Slam champions right now it's a lifestyle and it's not for everybody. So I think the one thing, if it's not determined on the level of player they're coaching, what's their, what makes the greatest coaches. I think it's their eye, what they can see and how quickly they can see it. For me, that's what separates the best coaches from the other coaches in the world. So at the top of the game, it's not always about corrections or this or that. It's a lot about 
mindset and management and just and just um, the well-being of the player of course there's some technical stuff very slight you know periodically and there's strategy and things like that but it's more about just managing the the player and the whole situation when you're working with players at that level with the younger generation as well are you have you noticed a change over the years so compared to when you first started is it a different coaching approach with the generation coming up now yeah, it's a tricky generation. <laughs> yeah, it's it is. It's tricky, but I'm I enjoy learning with people and advancing myself through my experiences with different kinds of people. So for me, of course, these things are kind of challenging. I think the one that is the hardest for me to navigate is the the bullying and the social pressure that they deal with about being popular or important or followers. And that's a that's a different kind of generation. So I think their attention spans are pretty short. I think they're the two things that make coaching a little bit more difficult. They seem to not retain that much information. But then on that side, I think you just pick your windows. Sometimes coaches, we give way too much information. As, as a coach, we're trying to fix things all the time and you don't always need to fix things. Sometimes you need to give the player a little bit more space. So when their attention spans shorter, maybe it's more essential for coaches to pick a window of opportunity to actually give that information that they need rather than just flooding them all the time. And I think creating a space for them as people, I think right now I'd like to see coaches work with that side of the relationship, make sure that the player always has someone to talk to. They're going through different things that maybe we didn't go through. And I would, not love I would love to be a kid today in some respects but overall I think it's difficult for them to navigate all of this stuff through social media and almost feeling disconnected at times so it's interesting that's for sure and you need to be able to relate to the kids I talk to them about TikTok or we might do some dances together current (laughs) these this is part of coaching it's it's building relationships and relating to the person that you're trying to impact so we can't just dismiss this generation as being difficult. It's just different and you, and technology is part of that. So you, if you want to be part of what's going forward, you've got to stay on top and learn about how to do all that stuff. Yeah, I, I've definitely, side note, I want to go check out your TikTok. Uh, I've but only done one. I've only done one. Has, okay, good form? It was last year. I was coaching a, a young kid, a nice kid. And she's doing these dances and she was so disinterested in tennis. It was amazing. <laughs> she was 13 and she just didn't care that much about tennis. So I would just hit some balls with her, play some games, do some TikToks. And that was a way to get her to keep playing the sport. If I flogged her and told her, you know, you got to run and got all over her, well, she would have been done with tennis pretty quickly. So I did my first TikTok and now... I sometimes do a guest appearance in the kids' TikToks. I I don't do my own. That's brilliant. Oh, I I totally agree. A coach gave me a really good piece of advice because I think for me transitioning from playing to coaching, obviously we played an elite level, so you're used to that elite level training. Where at this club level, the kids just want to have fun. So changing my mindset, that was a big challenge. But a coach said to me, he goes, you're going to teach them more, Karis, by them wanting to come on court than you will them not. 
So as long as you're getting them on court each week and, you know, they want to come and want to show up, whether it's, you know, you've got great games at the end or whatever, you're teaching them more rather than, you know, flogging them like you just said. We have to find ways. It's not our way. You have to get to know the kid and figure out what it is that they like to do and then you'll have a really good relationship and your coaching should be a lot more enjoyable. Speaking of getting digital as well, tennis has gone digital and coaching has gone digital with the Tennis Power app. Oh, yeah, yeah. New. Yeah, it's good. It's good. I a, a really good friend of my brother's, his name's Baden, and he created an app called Skillist. It's in golf and it's a great app. He's been really successful. He's a great entrepreneur and salesman and coach. He's a great coach. And he asked me, would I like to do that in tennis with him? And I just didn't think that that was going to be all in for him because he's very dedicated to golf at that time. So I had a chat to Tennis Pal who were a sponsor of the WTCA and we developed an analysis app on how to monetize those lessons. And I have done during this isolation phase, I've done, I've been working with three players actually, but there's a couple new concepts coming out that I'm super excited about. That's not what Tennis Pal is doing. It's doing a lesson where the player has their AirPods in and you can talk to them during the practice and there's all sorts of analysis tools that are going to go into that. So it's a great concept. So that's something we're going to start testing. I've already reached out to uh, Elise Cornet and her team at Sandra Zanefska and a couple other friends because I think it's it's going to be a game changer. And for me, that's really what I want to gravitate towards. I want to be able to help players everywhere, not just in the one immediate location that you can get to in LA, which is like a two kilometer drive or else you can't get anywhere. <laughs> it makes sense. I mean, it's making you coaches definitely full time. Like you're working while not on the court as well. So it was developed prior to this whole coronavirus. So it wasn't thought up, you know, now no. everyone's sort of not coaching as much okay yeah no it wasn't it wasn't and that was the interesting thing and it's a it's a very cool concept so I want to go all in I actually I didn't think of that and when I heard I was like oh that's really cool I do enjoy the analysis and some people really like to get ultra technical with analysis I'm much more kinesthetic with the way that I like to feel and explain things from a feeling perspective so I think analysis is fun, but I'm not really that into the science of coaching or the angle or this or that, and this is how you create that. That doesn't really get my mind ticking over, but from visual, visually or kinesthetically, I like that. And I think you can relay, relay that through this analysis through the app. And I think there's all sorts of different ways, and that's the way kids are responding. They, they're glued to their phone. They have screen addiction. I mean, everyone has screen addiction. What's the, what's the reception been so far from the app? To anyone I've spoken to about what Scott's doing, it's everyone's really excited because the features inside the app, it's, okay, you could get on Zoom and you could do something kind of similar, but there's all sorts of things about speed of ball or all the AI that's going to come with it. Like you'll be behind a screen and you'll be able to talk about all sorts of things like that, that you know, it's not just a video screen, it's being able to go through shop placement and things like that so it's pretty cool I'll have to get him on with you once he's once he's got it launched but it's gonna revolutionize the way that we coach and you know what I think it's also really good is that sometimes players that are can be a little tricky 
that in-person experiences, it when they're not working very hard and you have to give all your energy to amp them up, that can be very draining for a coach and it can really burn you out. But if I'm behind a screen and I'm working with a player who's not giving their maximum, it's it's a different energetic feeling because you're not energetically connected to, to the person. So interestingly, the kids that kind of tap out and coaches are like, I don't need to work with that kid, it's draining. If you did it from a behind a screen, you're not going to drain your energy in the same way that you would as if it was live. Okay, that's a different way of looking at it. Yes, yeah, so those kids that typically might be struggling or we think are a pain in the ass, which they're not, they're just going through what they're going through. Well, coaches yeah. will just kind of say, oh, I'm busy, I can't, or move on, or, you know, that happens all the time. So in this way, when it's not sucking all your energy out of you, you can still find a way to help those kids and maybe those kids get a lot more help from better coaches now because it's, it's, it works. And it's also, you know, if you do these online lessons, it might be kind of cool because you can have a couple of different perspectives from different coaches without anyone getting disappointed, any coaches getting upset. Yeah, that's true. It definitely gives you that variety. It's a different way of looking at things, which is great. And I think it's great for the game to always be adapting new approaches. Is this this tennis power and even the one Scott's developing, is it designed for the club player or even, you know, your pro tour player who might not necessarily be able to afford a coach to travel with them? Where's sort of the benchmark of who this is aimed at? Anybody, I would say. I think think that we looked at different ideas on who should work with the app. I think that the biggest market is the – it's youth sports. It's a $50 billion industry. So for tennis coaches, that's your target. I think there's definitely players, let's say you were on the road and you were playing, I don't know, where you like to play. Do you like to play in Turkey? Is that one of your locations? Is that Nicole? I Cole never, like I hit lot? up Netherlands and Germany. Oh, Netherlands, that's right, the Netherlands. Yeah, there. I have a Dutch passport, so I just got to walk straight in. Oh, I love it. Yeah, I love Holland. <laughs> so imagine yeah. I was here and you were there. And you didn't want to pay whatever the no, don't set aside that the weekly fees, right? Then you've got mm. the flights, the hotel. So, in a typical week for uh, maybe a top two hundred player, they're paying anywhere from a thousand US is is quite low. So you're probably talking for an, a decent level coach fifteen hundred US dollars to you know two and a half thousand plus then you've got they're usually staying in their own hotel room because not that many coaches want to share with players so it's another thousand dollars and you've got the flights then you've got their expenses I mean you're you're looking at thirty five hundred to four thousand dollars a week so if I was here and it was an hourly thing and you just wanted me to watch your practices for the week and you wanted me to sit in for 30 minutes and I said well you know I charge a hundred dollars an hour it'll be $50, you do seven practices, well, this is a lot cheaper. So I think it's going to be a massive game changer for that level as well. It's not just for younger players. It's Yeah, it's going to be exciting to see. I'm interested to see where it's headed. And on the topic of coaching, obviously mm. you're chair of the WTCA. So how did that all come about? 
I was having a conversation with one of my very best friends, Nicole Kriz. I went over to Nicole's house for a couple of days in Sydney to take a few days off and started chatting to her about how I travel around the world and don't see any female coaches. And I said, I can't wait for you to get out here, but she wasn't on the road at that time. And then I said, well, I think we need to do something about it and we need to push to get more female coaches into the space. But the way about it is not to create a a women-only coaches organisation because for us to push forward to gender equity in our sport, we need the support of those amazing male ally coaches that are advocates for women. So we went about the route of creating a Facebook and social media platform to start the discussion about how best to coach female players, like best practices, things about psychology, physiology, Some things are more stereotypically geared towards how do women as a whole relate to communication. Same is true for male players sometimes, but there's certain tendencies that are certainly more prevalent when you're working with female players. So that's what we did. She said, yeah, that sounds like a good idea. Go for it. So we started with women's tennis coaching and then kind of incorporated it. We, we became a company in the US and a nonprofit. And the main reason behind nonprofit was because I wanted the WTCA to belong to everybody. It's a community activity. It's not mine. It's for everyone. Nice. And the rest is kind of history. We just got on board. I got a president, Anne Grossman, Wonderlich. She was a great player, top 30 American player, a very good coach. And I felt like between us, with our connections to different generations, we could bring all the people together. So the the main reason for the success of the WTCA has been the ability to bring people together and to treat people equally, regardless of their background or what they achieved in tennis. For us, everybody's the same. It's become a great community and growing each day. Why don't you think we're seeing a lot of female elite coaches at the top? It's interesting A lot of people ask the same question. I think that women are not as open to traveling full-time on the tour. A lot of my friends that were great players or any level former player don't want to go back and do that week in, week out grind on the road. And they're very willing to do 20 weeks or so, but they don't want to do the 35, 40-week commitment. And that's also to do with having a young family mums it's the same across the whole workforce having young kids factors into it they don't want to leave their kids male coaches are more able to or more willing to make the choice of leaving their kids with their mum and traveling on the road that's a factor that you can't ignore and there's also the gender bias gender bias they're they're the two factors gender bias is massive I've spoken to professional players and said would you be interested in working with a female coach and the answers range from I, I just couldn't respect a female to wow. I don't. And this this is WTA Tour players. Uh, another one was I just there's too much um, emotion. There's too much going on if there's too many females and I just couldn't cope with all that emotional craziness. And you can have emotionally crazy male coaches, you can have emotionally crazy female coaches. So it's a systemic issue that we need to deal with and we need to get girls actually having a female coach at a younger age. I think that that's going to be a contributing factor so they know what that looks like. For a lot of players, they might even say, oh, I've never even had a female coach. So they don't even know what that looks like. So they just go with what they know. So there's 
there's a couple of areas that we need to tackle. The number one would be just inching up getting more female coaches to be visible coaching on the WTA tour, which is starting to happen. There's quite a few more at the moment. I mean, Mm -hmm. not a significant number, maybe eight to 10%. And that needle has not really moved since we started the WTCA. Sandra Zanevska asked me the other day, and I think we came up with seven or eight. So it's atrocious. But overall numbers of coaches that are female, registered coaches globally, it's around 20%. So you're battling that so there's two sides (laughs) Judy Murray says get more more women coaches into the workforce which I agree with but are women coaches going to really go into the workforce when there's a very very strong glass ceiling on top of their heads because they're not getting the jobs as federation coaches they're not getting the jobs as directors of clubs so where's their room to move in the industry so they choose another industry where they can actually advance it's a big issue, Karis. <laughs> I could talk all day yeah. about that one. <laughs> no, I can definitely, I definitely can relay. And I think you've just got to prove yourself as a female, which I'm sort of feeling now while you're young, you can, you can beat the guys and you sort of, then they go, oh, okay, she's legit. But, you know, as we get older, as females, that's harder to always, you know, be able to one up them. From that hitting capacity. That's yeah. one, another one of the big issues over time physiologically we we lose muscle mass and strength and all of that and we're not able to perform at that same level and hit at that same level anymore whereas a guy is and I think we need to work hard to stay strong but there's this stigma on female coaches that they need to hit and then I'll see Robert Lansdorp at Wimbledon with Jeannie Bouchard and he's 80 years old and he can barely shuffle himself onto the court and he's certainly not hitting So all in all, women are held to a much higher standard, which is one of the difficult things about advancing women in coaching. So I think education is one of the key factors for getting that awareness out to players that maybe it is just gender bias as to why they're not looking at female coaches. And agents are another issue with professional players, majority male agents Guys look for people that look like them. Oh, my mate, oh, he'd be a good fit. And it's it's kind of jobs for the boys. So if we have more female agents, maybe we'll get more female coaches. So it's a, it's such a broad issue that we need to identify these key areas that we want to deal with one by one. And then I think we'll see a big change, but it's going to take an overall commitment from the entire industry. And let's see what happens. I think we're making some strides, but it's we've got to stay on the journey for a while yet. That's a great point. Do you think we'll ever see, I mean, obviously, Emily Moresmo coaching Andy Murray. Do you ever think we'll ever see another female coach coaching a top 10 male player? I think so. I'm not sure when that's going to be. And it really depends on how open-minded and progressive the male player is. I think Luca Pui has done pretty well with Moresmo and she's highly respected coach but do you need to be a grand slam champion as a female to coach a male top 10 player Mm. why is it that Craig Tizer can do such a great job with Ash Barty when as far as I know he didn't ever get an ATP ranking yet women are being asked to be grand slam champions to work with men it's an interesting thing to ponder Women have to step up into that space though, Karis. It's another thing. I've been coaching a couple of young guys that have world rankings and for me it's just part of the what I do. 
but not all women are prepared to step into that space because they don't all have the courage and the willingness to be vulnerable in that space. It's a little bit scary, but the more and more and more that women do it, the more that we're going to see it happen. So I do think so, but I'm not sure we'll see too many in the next five years. Maybe we'll see more and more as time goes by. Yeah. I'm, hey, props to the next girl who is coaching a top 10 Might male be you. player. Um, <laughs> hey, who knows? Who knows? Sarah, thanks so much for joining us today. And thanks for talking to us more about the WTCA and life of a touring coach as well. Thanks, Karis. It'll only cost you 20 minutes. Thanks for listening and I hope you enjoyed that chat with Sarah Stone. If you want to find out more about the WTCA, I have included their website and their social handles in this episode description. If you enjoy the chat, make sure you rate and review it on Apple Podcasts or wherever you find your podcasts. Every review you make helps people find the Teach Me In 20 podcast, so it means they'll also be able to find this episode. Next week, we're hearing from Angela B. Chan. She is the CEO of Hackathons Australia. If you have no idea what a hackathon is or have never even heard of the word, make sure you subscribe so you can hear that episode as soon as it comes out and you can learn about them with me. See you next week. Teach me in 20. Teach me in 20.